I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Hannah Zeven, a lecturer in the departments of English and History at the University of California, Berkeley. Her new book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy, is a transnational social history of therapies deployed beyond the classical consulting room. Visit her website, zeavin.org, that's zeven.org, for upcoming events. You can also follow her at Twitter, at hzeven, that's h-z-e-a-v-i-n, at Twitter. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Well, I'd love to just begin by saying thank you so much for having me. Um, and one thing I was thinking of that maybe we could talk about, because I know it's also an interest of yours too, or more than an interest, is the sort of strained relationship between the occult psychoanalysis and also teletherapy. Oh, cool. Well, tell me more about that. Uh, one thing that surprised me so the book opens with a discussion of Freud's suppressed papers on telepathy, which lots of people have written about. I think many people are so stimulated and excited to see the occult in Freud and also how the occult was kept at bay uh, in Freud. And the stories are just wild, right? That Freud gathered a bunch of his followers in secret to talk about actually how telepathy was certainly possible, if not definitely actual. Freud at the end of his life remarked that he had wished he had, you know, worked on telepathy instead of psychoanalysis and was a card carrying member of, um, you know, a number of organizations that were oriented this way, both, both in England and I think also the United States. He was like an honorary American member. Um, but one thing that really surprised me in elaborating this book was that moving from Freud's very real experiments with telepathy, with seances, telepathy and teletherapy keep crossing each other. And so sometimes people will say the title of my book, The Distance Cure, A History of Telepathy. And I love that because it keeps coming up again and again, uh, where the idea of speaking at great distance from one another is collapsed into the idea of thought transference, of speaking at no distance from one another, even if the distance is still physical. Um, and so I was surprised and loved to see that so many people coincidentally kept feeding me this line that, that teletherapy in the COVID-19 pandemic was like telepathy because of noise canceling headphones or like telepathy because they were suddenly not six feet away from one another on the couch in a chair, but uh, with the cell phone right in the ear. Um, so I was wondering if you've also had that kind of experience as you've worked on the occult and thought a lot about the occult and psychoanalysis, but also of course are a, a teletherapist. That's a good question. I mean, I hadn't thought of that until the beginning of your book. And I also hadn't thought of how you talk about it in the beginning as well, like that there's always been media mediating, even though people have thought of it as like something brand new, like, like all of a sudden we have media mediating, but really we always have. And this whole idea of like staying precious about the two bodies in a room being something that psychoanalysis has really like geared itself towards, even though 
like you said, that wasn't always the case with Freud. And he also did like teletherapy in the forms of letter writing and that sort of thing, even way back when. Um, but I haven't had anybody talk to me about that idea of teletherapy and telepathy. But um, I feel like I feel like what I've learned is that, well, number one, I don't think we really understand consciousness that well, <laughs> as much as we like to think we do. Um, and another thing, because everybody has had that experience, you know, when you think of telepathy of like when two people, you know, are really close together or like they spend a lot of time together or have an intimate relationship, like you do often like call each other at the same time or like, you know, finish each other's sentences or things like that. And what is going on there? And of course, like the relational analysts will talk more about like, having this kind of third in the room that like is both of the the analyst and the patient kind of combined into this like third mind sort of thing but like other than the relationalist nobody really talks about things that way so I, I think that's number one is that we don't really understand consciousness that well or how it works um, and then of course is like young with his collective unconscious and, and a lot of spiritual traditions believe that sort of thing as well um, and I think we kind of need to stop pretending that we do know how it works because I don't think we do. <laughs> One of the first interventions I try and make in the book um, is to posit this idea that we've vastly misconceived of whether it's the analytic or, you know, the book moves on semi-quickly from psychoanalysis to think of the therapeutic relationship as a therapist, a patient, or a helper and a helpee. Uh, and media, some form of mediation. And, you know, so not just uh, the third, but a very specific third um, that we can't get rid of. And so one thing that was so amazing in the pandemic, uh, especially once the idea for private practice, right? So many people never stopped or barely stopped seeing each other in the room because of course not everyone receives their care in an office in private practice. But for those that did stop and stop for a really long time, the idea of going back for many people was a kind of like, no duh. Uh, teletherapy is still after a year of working this way, I find it deeply impoverished. And one line of recourse that folks would use, and I, I, people would say this, I've seen it like three different ways on listservs is some idea of like, well, Freud would have never champion, championed teletherapy. And I always want to stick my hand in the air and say, um, excuse me, you know, Freud was, was deeply invested in thinking through media uh, very much as the, the language for metaphorization for psychoanalysis, whether it's like listening is like a telephone call or memory is like a mystic writing pad. And I think that's better known, but the book also tries to show that Freud himself made use of the very real and material postal system uh, to supply analytic treatment, not just for himself, uh, but also for many others. The most famous case of which, of course, is Little Hans, but it's not the only one. You know, Freud was very invested in using the letter either adjunctively to extend the reach of treatment or as the total container for treatment, like in, in the Little Hans case or in his quote unquote so-called self-analysis with, with Fleece. I feel like, I feel like in my impression of Freud, of course, this could be a projection, but he seems like, to me, like he would do whatever works. Like he seemed like he, you know, work with people in whatever way work with for them or with them. And he would like sometimes go to people's houses. Sometimes people would come to him, write letters, like you said. Uh, there was one person that he was like, you seem really hungry. Let me feed you, you know, things like that. And he seemed to just be like very human in that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one thing I've grown to really love about Freud, uh, sitting a lot with with Freud and, and, and Freud's, Freud's own revisions of himself is that he just is a very flexible and capacious thinker. Um, many people, when they're elaborating a science, you know, they build linear, linearly. Uh, a and then B and then C. And even as they might contradict themselves, they sort of repress that. Now, Freud, of course, burned a ton of his writing. Uh, we only have a partial record. Uh, the Freud archives have been uh, very slow to release new material, but we can see Freud revising on the fly all the time. Uh, and I, like you said, making use of what works uh, and, and then repeating or not repeating it. 
um, across decades of treatment. Um, and that's something I really came to value, especially in, in looking in the book uh, at Freud's work on money um, and really thinking about the status of money, which of course is another way that treatment is mediated or not. Uh, but even money's absence, of course, is a, is a mediation under capital. Absolutely. And also you talk about the frame. And the frame as a classic example of, so that's one of the ways I start by saying that we may valorize and celebrate the in-person scenario as this kind of pure encounter. Uh, but I try and think about how it's ritualized and staged, not in the under the lines of kind of a performance um, only, but you know, really there's all this kind of binding work and boundary work that happens in the elaboration of a frame as, as a kind of mediating of the encounter that, <coughs> sorry, some people of course feels really absent once we move you know, online to Zoom, what we're doing right now, you and, and me. Uh, but for other people, you know, a huge rush of creativity can come back in in those spaces. Uh, for Freud, with the letter, there was all kinds of re-substantiation of the frame, including a kind of recourse to imagining or fantasizing uh, being together in the room, but not only. So moving back and forth between representing a room in the letter and really using what's called in media studies, right, the affordances of a letter to communicate something very special about that different container. Yeah, and I love how you talk about, yeah, how, how teletherapy has evolved alongside of therapy, like since the beginning, like it's always been there. Always been there and always been changing. Um, you know, so that's something I try and detail rather quickly in the, in the introduction of the book, uh, that the minute something has been set, it's also been diverted from. Um, often, and this was, you know, really the book was finished when the pandemic started. Um, and we can also talk about that if you want, like what the pandemic taught me. And so I was able to write a coda that reflects on some of the very early clinical work uh, happening under the sign of both the pandemic, but also the uprisings of now two summers ago, if we, if we decide that the end of August is no longer summer um, uh, in 2020. And, um, you know, when the book was finished, uh, it was clear to me before the pandemic that teletherapy often asserts itself and reasserts itself in relationship to crisis. Um, that one of the very first things that happens is that that work, the sort of therapeutic work gets interrupted in crisis. And then that people try and find a way, like what you're saying about Freud. And sometimes those ways are deeply pernicious, right? They are uh, about profit motive. They are about um, batch processing patients in order to increase bottom lines. Uh, but in other moments, it's deeply moving uh, activist work that's about making a new form of care or a new form of what I call in the book distanced intimacy that allows the work to go on. Uh, and that's also what we saw in the pandemic, both so far. I mean, the pandemic, which is deeply ongoing, that on the one hand, uh, there was a huge rush uh, to what I'm starting to sort of not anymore jokingly call big therapy, uh, a huge eco explosion of uh, B-series funding for apps for telehealth and, and including teletherapy. And on the other hand, all kinds of exciting and new ways that patients were able to meet with their therapists whether or not they'd ever met before in person. Yeah, so what a timely book to have come out. Like you said that you were finishing it when the pandemic was starting. So of course you didn't know that was going to happen and that all of a sudden there was gonna be like a teletherapy boom, at least in our field. Um, so what was that like for you and what have you learned since then? I think there's no way to say what it was like for me on the grounds of just the book. I mean, I think like everyone else, you know, all of a sudden life ground to a halt um, and a new form of life immediately had to be elaborated. I was in the Bay Area where I still am, haven't left since <laughs> um, March 13th, uh, you know, 2020, 
all of a sudden I had been teaching a hundred person lecture class on the history of Silicon Valley. I came home and we didn't leave the house again. Um, I have a young child. My young child also didn't leave the house again. We were in lockdown. California is the sense of COVID states in the country, like 50 out of 50. We had the most intensive rules, the earliest. Um, but so, so that was what life was like. And, and then very quickly, um, you know, the book was, was out of my hands. It was under review. And uh, so I wasn't actively working on it, but I had all of these interviews uh, and, and connections with clinicians across the country and across the world. And so I followed up with them uh, and started talking to additional people about what this shift was like uh, to, you know, not just teletherapy with one or two patients because someone moved away, but an entire practice uh, online or on the phone and how people were making do in that way where of course the work intersects with life. Even if uh, the consulting room is held out as a kind of bastion of the neutral or where the social doesn't necessarily come in um, for some people. Uh, this was nonetheless an obvious impact. Uh, and so that, that in a way is very different from something that I talk about in the book, like the suicide hotline case, where you know people are using the hotlines, but they're also doing everything else uh, off the phone uh, that isn't you know calling on the phone. They having they're having a sort of uh, other set of textures uh, beyond the phone. Uh, it's much more like um, you know the World War II case or the war in Algeria case that I talk about in the book second chapter where it was another moment where a kind of distance was everywhere and a reliance on media was pretty total. Um, so I can't even say that this was the first time where suddenly we, those of us lucky enough to, of course, for it certainly wasn't total, were living behind a Zoom screen. Uh, and that's where a lot of this notion about uh, telepathy emerged, that even though historic, you know, historically we've understood teletherapy to be lesser, metallic, um, and filled with a kind of loss narrative, which is something I, I argue with and, and against in my book, um, people were starting to find something else emerge, right? Which is that it works first and foremost, and that it also presents new forms of interaction and new forms of relating over distance. Um, and so in that way, the, the argument of the book held up under this latest test, however extreme. Yeah, and for, I mean, for me, my daily life didn't really change much um, because I had already started doing teletherapy uh, all the time in my practice when I moved from the U.S. to Sweden. So in something like that, you know, it was really great to be able to have uh, this as, as an option to be able to continue to work. And then all of a sudden, you know, I settled here and then now all of a sudden everybody is, uh, everybody I know that, that's in private practice is all, all of a sudden having to do um, their entire practice online and freaking out and having all these meetings of how do we do this and what do we do and what are the pros and what are the cons and do you have the video on or off or I remember somebody saying that they for their analytic patients that are on the couch like actually had their video off but the patient had to have their video on so that the analyst could see them or something like that but they still were laying on the couch it was like everyone had these different techniques that they were trying to uh, implement. Um, yeah, but it, for me, it was like nothing really changed that much in that way. Um, and then now, as you know, I've been able to move from the city to a small town and, and you know, just continue to practice the same way. So for me, it's been kind of a lifesaver. Um, and, you know, I still see people talking about how they can't wait to go back to two bodies in a room. And, um, you know, if that's what people want to do, that's fine, too. But I think for people who it's useful to work this way, you know, that's great. Also, I think the more options, the better. Yeah, exactly. I, the book is not some kind of, um, you know, sentimental. In fact, an early review of the book called it unsentimental, <laughs> which I was happy to see. Um, sentimental attachment to the idea of teletherapy or some great defense of its practice. Rather, I tried to bracket this idea that it was hopelessly lesser 
uh, to think about how it really has been used and used, you know, often as the emergency room of care. Um, and so in a way that that is a big switch uh, in the pandemic because it was both the emergency room and the zone of palliative care, except everyone kind of was in the emergency room. Um, you know, everyone needed the care they were receiving more or less. But I think that the rush back to the office is something I've thought a lot about. I think a lot about it, both in terms of, you know, whatever is, is begot in states of emergency uh, often becomes a norm on the other side. And I do think that we need to be careful uh, about just accepting wholesale the move online for a number of reasons that aren't related to the question of whether or not the thing works, but are related to questions of insurance, uh, related to questions of access, uh, related to questions of classing presence, uh, embodied presence together, um, et cetera. But I also think that the rush back to the consulting room can have this, you know, tricky thing where, you know, the US situation is so specific because of the way mental health care and insurance functions that so much teletherapy was reimbursed or that the co-pays were dropped. And it did really open up one form of um, barrier to care uh, kind of accidentally and overnight. Uh, and that's all sort of going away now when people are fighting to have that access continued. And the other thing, of course, is that disability activists have been fighting forever, uh, for decades and decades to have uh, different kinds of access, right? Um, distance learning didn't start in the pandemic. It's something that disability activists have fought for. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, many of our fields and our adjacent fields gate were, were happy to accommodate online life because it meant keeping a much larger population uh, at home. And now we're also seeing a really quick push back to in-person everything, uh, in-person teaching, in-person conferences, uh, in-person su such and so forth. And I worry about that kind of, again, not making use of a plethora of tools and techniques, which include the digital, um, but really insisting on moving forward uh, only in person, uh, especially while the pandemic still rages. I mean, it's worse now in the U.S. than it has been in months. Um, and we'll, you know, we're going, it's, it's still, it's still technically summer. We're, we're not even in fall yet. Will you talk more about Turing? Talk more about Turing? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the book, the book has five chapters, uh, an introduction and a, con a conclusion, and then five in internal chapters and the conclusions on the pandemic. Um, and the penultimate chapter deals with this, this elusive quest to make an AI therapist, uh, some kind of algorithmic form of care. And uh, the chapter opens with thinking with Turing's very long set of criteria for what will go on to be called the Turing test. One of which is about blocking out the possibility of telepathy. Um, and so, you know, again, it's another place where thinking about what the machine might have communicated to it by a human uh, is um, needs to be delimited and understood uh, like by a kind of psychical Faraday cage so that the experiment can be purely about uh, the machine itself mimicking a human as opposed to being in telepathic conversation with a human. And it opens up a big you know, sort of question, which is what is happening when humans are alone with machines for quote unquote therapeutic care? Uh, and I come up with, um, a theory of what's happening, which is what I call auto intimacy, a kind of closed circuit of the self run through a machine. Um, and I give a lot of different examples that don't have to do with machines that are that are interrelated, like the phenomenon of thumb sucking or um, of keeping a diary and so on to think about what's happening when someone is delighted or frustrated by, say, Eliza, that most famous therapeutic artifact, uh, which is Joseph Weizenbaum's 1966, um, quite accidental 
elaboration of a therapy bot, which many people, especially Gen X, played with, right, uh, much after the fact in the 1980s online, um, and remains a kind of signal case of many of the panics that surround uh, AI therapy, but also teletherapy, which are not exactly coincidental, but some idea of a loss of humanness. Um, and for me, the panics around an AI therapist are, are not quite that. They're not quite about the fact that it's not a human, uh, but precisely more about you know data, privacy, um, confidentiality, uh, and, and many other things that also go wrong in the human to human encounter, um, but now are being scaled up quite vastly. And so instead of one leak from a analyst at a dinner party, you would have, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users data being made vulnerable. Um, and people who are, are more vulnerable and are having these tools marketed them to them. That's one of the concerns. And the other is that so much of the AI therapy and algorithmic care space is marketed as a kind of wellness um, that's all about kind of bringing oneself back into a better health for something else, the something else there being work. Mm. Um, and, you know, this kind of hashtag self-care, which is a total defanging of and depoliticization of a much more radical notion of self-care um, to prepare the worker for going right back to work, which is, of course, something we see in Freud, too, with Freud's adage, right, that that psychoanalysis is to prepare you for health, health being the capacity to work and the capacity to love. But in 2021, we've lost love and now it's just about work. Yeah, and it's also like the difference between like work is something that you're like inspired to do is something that you're really like passionate about versus like work just being like a cog in the big capitalist corporate machine. Yeah, um, and you know, in Freud's moment, certainly, I mean, this is where, where the charges of Freud only caring for the bourgeois class come from, right? There, there were plenty of people who had that relationship to work uh, and for whom psychoanalysis was withheld or not meant. And then Freud has this revision, right? And this is the, the brilliant and beautiful book by Elizabeth Danto, Freud's Clinics, right? Where suddenly actually there is a huge turn uh, in psychoanalysis after World War I at the start of the Spanish influenza to caring for those beyond the initial remit of psychoanalysis, which, which was successful, which did happen. And then of course was destroyed um, by the ascent of fascism. Yeah, so what do we think about that kind of uh, doubling in history? It's like a similar thing. It is a huge push towards like psychoanalysis for the people uh, in the midst we're having this pandemic. Well, uh, I think it, it's 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 a fantastic echo, and and then the question is, how do we safeguard it? Uh, and expand it. I think there are really, you know, this is one reason to be a student of history is to see how things were done in the past, how these free clinics, these voucher systems, and again, I just highly suggest everyone go pick that book up, as well as the People's History of Psychoanalysis, which also deals with uh, many other uh, iterations of activist care that come from the clinic uh, and go outward. I think that those are the lessons that we need to be studying now uh, as people start to make these more radical clinics again uh, that come from a kind of uh, psychoanalytic background. But like Freud says in that sort of famous stump speech, lines of advance for psychoanalysis aren't only going to be psychoanalytically oriented, um, they're going to do other things too. Uh, whether that's like a space like the Green Clinic in New York or things that people are doing in their private practices around sliding scale or, or low fee or no fee treatment. Um, and then we also can look at what can go wrong uh, interpersonally uh, in terms of burnout, which has been, you know, a century long phenomenon, uh, but also in terms of the current political sphere and space. Um, 
where there there is also that parallel too, of course, of, of what came after. And we've been sitting with that question, I think, uh, for quite some time. And I don't think it's I don't think it's wise to just make neat equivalences uh, between, you know, Nazi Germany and then Vienna uh, and our present. Uh, but I think there's a whole host of things to be learned from those who accomplished that radical revision in psychoanalysis so early, only to have it have it totally lost. Yeah, totally devastating. Um, maybe it's a good time to talk about Fanon because you talk about Fanon a bit as well, and is uh, thinking about the role of the radio in nation building, psychiatric yeah, so nation building. Yeah, the the Fanon case is in that second chapter, which deals with many different experiments with the radio. And Fanon, you know, I think is so importantly remembered as a decolonial theorist and really was also a, a psychiatrist who died just before he was able to start uh, training to become a psychoanalyst, um, died so young and uh, left such a huge record. And the case I look at is the shift in the use of the radio uh, in Algeria and Fanon's writings about it, which is not just about how media might cure. Um, and again, the book is called The Distance Cure, but I push back on the notion of a cure. And, um, but also how the radio shifts, uh, quote unquote, pathology. Um, shifts fantasy, shifts gathering. And one thing I really take from Fanon uh, seriously as a lesson is that it's not necessarily about a kind of perfect medium that uh, then gives you a kind of perfect treatment. Um, so one thing that comes up a lot in the current pandemic, and I return to Fanon quite extensively again in the coda, um, a, lot of, a lot of worry about glitch um, or a bad signal uh, or having to say, can you hear me? Can, can I hear you? Can you see me now? Um, which gives rise to all kinds of ways of thinking about what's coming up for both the analyst and the patient, the therapist and the patient, when those breakdowns happen in the setting, in the frame, which is now digital, uh, although many people are also choosing only to use the phone. Uh, and I, I build off of Fanon or I follow Fanon in thinking about something called the medium inside, uh, where for Fanon, it wasn't that the radio uh, had no noise and was all signal. It was precisely that there was so much noise that it allowed uh, for kind of new collective identities to be built around um, speaking as if one had heard signal from the radio, but in fact, you sort of transcribing or translating the noise of the radio. Uh, which had a whole massive impact on a uh, political identity and a revolutionary identity. And so thinking again about, well, what, it, what if there is attendant loss or what if there's attendant glitch or what if it's a, a pain to speak uh, over these various digital mechanisms? And what if that's the thing that allows for a different kind or a new kind of work to begin, whether that's happening in the relational dyadic which I revised to be a triadic always scenario or something uh, at greater scale. Um, and, you know, there've been lots of folks trying to think about what things like Twitter are doing to the psyche, um, whether it's Jacob Johansson's work or Richard Seymour's work. Um, and this is trying to think about what kinds of digital conditions do to the, the sort of more traditional therapeutic frame, something a bit smaller, less um, en masse, uh, but what's actually happening inside treatment. Great, I'm supposed to have Jacob on soon as well. So Jacob's phenomenal. And yeah, he's yeah. really good. Um, and when you were talking before about like the AI therapist, you know, when you were talking about them being like kind of, you know, auto autodidactic or- Auto-intimacy. Auto intimacy. Yeah. And it totally, you know, I was thinking about that in a positive way when you were talking about it first, because a lot of what people do just in general is a lot of projection. <laughs> and a lot of the times, like, you know, when people have transference to you or all sorts of other people in their lives, you really can see that people are really enacting things 
from from themselves to themselves all the time, really. Um, so in that way, I started thinking, well, maybe the AI, you know, software is not so bad because people really are kind of doing that in a way all the time anyway. Just like, um, but then once you brought into the point of um, the data, <laughs> the data being mined or collected, that just gave it a dystopian turn. Yeah, I mean, and so I think that that's, that's exactly the kind of wrestling that I tried to do in the book which is, okay, we do have massive problems in communicating mental health care from and to the people who want it and who need it. Um, and so on the one hand, of course, what if we could batch process and scale, but that just is remediating the problems of the human at large. And you know, it's not gonna just stop there. Um, so in terms of dystopia, right, the things that are to come um, are equally as worrisome, right? Like the use of, and I have other colleagues who work on this, people like Beth Semmel, um, you know, the use of paralinguistic vocal monitoring uh, that can turn a call center into a therapy clinic, um, but is using, you know, stress testing or, uh, um, you know, various other kinds of software to distinguish, you know, not who should have human to human care or trained human care, but also uh, should be marked as diagnosed with X or Y. And then of course, there's also the, the labor question there, right? I think one thing um, that we've been so trained to think of is that, you know, say Siri is just a bot. There's a whole host of human labor that uh, goes into the making of an elaboration of something like Siri and maintaining Siri. Uh, and in the sort of call center case, there would be not just the people who are technologists, but also the people whose job it is to, to wait and field uh, all kinds of emotional turmoil without care for themselves or the training to process it. Uh, so I think that you know, when people speak about worries about, say, in the US, you know, national licensure, uh, and they point to things like the call center, I do think we have to take these worries seriously, even if they're held under the sign of dystopia. Um, but also look at how little has been accomplished in this space since the 1960s, so that we're not overhyping the technology is capable of something that it's just not capable of. Um, you know, so even even things like uh, WISA, Google's AI bot, which comes with an adorable penguin, so that you're having therapy with an algorithm that has the avatar of an adorable blue penguin. Very quickly, they're going to kick you from the AI to a human um, if things go wrong, and things can go wrong. That's so interesting. I can't wait to finish the book. I, I got it just last at the end of last week in the mail. So I've started it, but I haven't gotten all the way through. But I'm this is a book that I'm really excited to finish reading cover to cover. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for writing it. Um, what made you decide to start on this work? Um, my cute answer, of course, is that it's it's multiply determined. Um, on the one hand, intellectually, I was I was sitting with two pretty what felt like separate interests. One was a deep investment in psychoanalysis and its history and psychology's history, and the other was a deep investment in the history of technology. Um, and I began to think about these two things together and thought maybe about writing on mediated therapy, but very quickly, my argument became there's only such a thing as mediated therapy to say mediated therapy in essence is redundant. Um, so then I couldn't write a book on mediated therapy because I would have written about everything. Um, and the book is already long um, and it would have been triple or quadruple the size and I would I would never finish. So I decided to delimit to the question of teletherapy at a moment when that quote unquote ecosystem was just really getting going. Uh, the smartphone was becoming ever more ubiquitous uh, in the United States context. And there was this idea about pushing into uh, 
text therapy, e-therapy, it was about to be called uh, sort of telehealth as a big uh, ecosystem. And, you know, Talkspace uh, and eventually BetterHelp joined uh, blanketing New York City subways with those ads. Uh, and um, that's when I began to go backwards, kind of like archaeologically, though it's not a media archaeology and it's not a, a psychoanalytic text but going backwards and backwards and began to catch each of these cases, um, some of which I knew about and have been written about, like Eliza, who's there in the book. She can't not be, she in scare quotes. Um, but other, other uh, cases that really had been undertold or not really told at all, uh, like the history of the suicide hotline, um, like reconceiving of Freud's, you know, work with the letter as a form of proto-teleanalysis. Uh, it's not that no one had ever thought about Little Hans as a case. Of course, you know, Jenny Stewart's work there is amazing. But to say, and it's a teleanalysis, and here's what that gives us was important to me. Um, and yeah, so I just kept finding such rich material uh, in archives, both, you know, that had never been really processed well, but also online. So a big shout out to the Wayback Machine and the Internet Archive. The book wouldn't have been quite possible without them. And then finding the people still alive, you know, who had done uh, cyber therapy in the 90s or had hosted, uh, you know, various kinds of therapy on, on early, early internet stuff in the 1980s. Uh, and uh, that just kept me going for more until it was a kind of a broad look at 130 years of history. Wonderful. Yes, I love the Internet Archive as well. They're one of the things that I give my little donation to every month. I have like the automatic monthly donation going to them to help keep them alive. Great. <laughs> we need the Internet Archive. We really do. And, and like you said, too, it's not just therapy that's like this now but like uh, a lot of people are getting like medical care this way like I know here in Sweden they have like an app and you know if you have like a rash or something on your arm you can like take a picture of it and it'll send it to a doctor and they'll tell you like if you can buy this cream for it or if you need to come in and things like that as well yeah no I mean a colleague of mine Jeremy Green will have a book out I believe next year on the history of telemedicine and not and has written beautifully. I mean, you can look it up. A beautiful essay in the Boston Review early in the pandemic about what it what it's like to both provide medical care that way and also its pitfalls and problems for various kinds of patients. Um, and again, right on the one hand, we cannot we cannot push to get rid of this access. It has opened up so many avenues for so many people to receive care that they hadn't before, but also we can't fall at the same time for this kind of democratizing logic of corporate telehealth, whether it's medicine or therapy, uh, because that's not uh, the, the future of care that we want uh, and comes with this whole host of problems I've already enumerated. Um, so really holding both those sides in mind uh, is more difficult. It's not a fun and easy soundbite it's a both and. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, the marketing, of course, is so persuasive that this is, this is the only future. Um, and so I think we have to really contend, whether we're clinicians or historians or both, with, with where we've been and where we're, we're setting ourselves up to go. Yeah, and do you know, like you said, in the U.S., it's more complicated because of the insurance and, you know, people are licensed in certain states and are not supposed to practice across state lines. But then with, like, the pandemic happening, like, I know people, colleagues who, like, say their patients were at college in New York, but then they had to go back home to, you know, Oklahoma or California or Texas or something. And, like, what is the clinician supposed to do then? Like, is the person supposed to lose their treatment or find someone in the area when they're going to go eventually back to New York or whatever state, you know, do you know what happened with that? And like, uh, with like the logistics of all of that? Or like you said, they're thinking of doing like a national kind of licensure or something now? Yeah, so I think on the one hand, a lot of folks are pushing for that national licensure. They want 
they want that problem to disappear. And that problem, of course, centers on the question of liability and often suicidality and suicide is the litmus test. And that emerged again and again in my research. I thought I was gonna have a chapter on the suicide hotline and it, it becomes a kind of legal uh, question and, and again, litmus test for how to do therapeutic work over distance. And college students actually are often the example uh, of why you would want a national licensure, but also why uh, you know universities, et cetera, or I get very worried about litigiousness around uh, distance treatment. Uh, and that, that's been true since at least the 1980s, uh, which I talk about in my book, starting uh, at Cornell and, and moving outward. Um, so I think one thing to say is that a number of the defining um, norms, whether they be legal or medical legal, around what platform you can use, at what distance, from whom, all sort of were put on hold in the pandemic. Um, there was just a kind of waiver as people negotiated, but even before the pandemic, there were reciprocal licenses between some states and you could read the um, delimiting factors however would best suit you. Uh, so there was a lot of built-in interpretive flexibility, if you would, to the law. You, you know, you can practice in California from New York up to say 30 sessions, but it doesn't say 30 sessions a month or 30 sessions a year. So you can decide which is which. And now because of the problems of the pandemic, exactly like the case you laid out, well, what about the college student who lives in New York but is in school in California? Uh, should they find someone else? The therapist is in California, they move back home, et cetera, are pushing for this kind of reciprocal recognition across state lines. Um, and many, many people are in favor of it. The people I know who are not in favor of it are deeply sympathetic to why one would want that license, but worry again about the kind of call center then or um, a push to move on mass therapeutic care online and host it uh, you know, somewhere much, much cheaper than where many clinicians find themselves living you know, like in urban centers in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, of course, because we have such a paucity of care in many places uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, that's something we're going to watch. I mean, there are many people advocating for it at this moment, and we'll see what happens with it. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. And of course, you know, it's different, different everywhere, because other places, other countries don't have this kind of issue of state lines and that sort of thing. So that in that case, it's like a specific kind of American issue. No, it's a it is a super uh, American specific issue. State lines, of course, um, but also the way it interrelates with insurance mm -hmm. uh, is is doubly very American. Uh, of course, there are other places in the world where there are concentrated numbers of professionals and experts and uh, teletherapy has long been the only way that much of a country might receive care. Um, and again, the book tries to show that far from being a new concern, whether pre-pandemic in the moment where therapy is available on your smartphone and now where we really associate teletherapy to the pandemic, it really truly is as old as psychoanalysis itself. I love that. Well, is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to be sure to mention? I know you've been doing a lot of events and things lately. Do you have anything else coming up or is this kind of? Well, so this coming Thursday, uh, September 2nd, I have an event with Orna Goralnik at McNally Jackson, but online virtual. Um, and uh, then there will be a number of events throughout the year. Uh, one next February at the Ford Museum, I'm especially uh, really looking forward to because that's such a, will be such an amazing thing to speak about Freud while also being hosted by the Ford Museum. Uh, but all of the upcoming events are available on my website, zeven.org, or you can follow me on Twitter at hzeven. Uh, I post these things from time to time. Cool, fantastic. Thank you so much, Vanessa.
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Hannah Zeven. Check out her book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy, from MIT Press, 2021. Visit her website, zeavin.org, that's zeven.org, for upcoming events, including the release of her second book, Mother's Little Helpers, Technology in the American Family, due out from MIT Press in 2023. You can also follow her at Twitter at HZeven, that's H-Z-E-A-V-I-N, at Twitter. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. And now, these boots. Just got a brand new pair. A song from the new album, Conceive Ourselves, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy. You can find this and all our music at Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. However, one of these days, these boots will drug the psyche of us all. Drug the psyche of us all. Drug the psyche of us all. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. These boots are made for walking. Just got a brand new pair. However, one of these days, these boots will drug you. One of these days, these boots will drug you. One of these days, these boots will drug you. One of these days, these boots will drug you. Drug you. Drug you.